Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week our guest is author and professor of political history at Princeton, Julian Zelazar. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to our sponsors, Roan Apparel and Hold On Bags in the show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, President Biden's week wasn't as bad as the House Republicans, but there were challenges. He addressed the immigration issue at the southern border, uh, which has bedeviled this administration for two years, as Republicans demagogue. Uh, and the president announced he's going to allow, I think it's 360,000 migrants seeking asylum from violently repressive Latin American countries, Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua. Those on the left say it's not enough. Conditions are too tough. They may sue. Those on the right say it's too soft uh, and conditions uh, aren't hard enough. Uh, This is really a difficult issue. As you've noted, Americans are pro-immigration and anti-open borders. The Trump policies were, I think, a disaster inhumane, separating little children from their parents. But as the president found out this week, finding middle ground on this is not only difficult, it's elusive and it's politically lethal. And I think there are going to be a lot more internal administration fights and legal uh, challenges. Well, the one thing that we know as of right now, this moment in the American economy, there is a massive labor shortage. There are more people working today in the United States than at any time in history. And I'm glad we're having this show on myth busting. But I can tell you the, the biggest myth that you hear is people don't want to work anymore. No, more working than ever. And obviously, the quick answer to the labor shortage is more immigration. So I don't, I, I certainly don't agree with the left, but I really don't agree with the right. But I, I, on this instance, I'm a little closer to the left that. This is a humane thing. People actually have good reasons to seek asylum, to come here. We've always granted people asylum. I mean, how do you think we got all the the Cubans in in South Florida? All right? And and people will come in from tyrannical regimes from from Europe, particularly Eastern Europe. So I'm... I, I agree. I'm not born. I'm, I'm in our guest coming up that makes a very important distinction. There's two issues. Immigration, which people like. Disorder on the border, which people don't like. But, but the, because Biden is create, I, I think one fair criticism of Biden, I've said this publicly, you can blame Biden for c- creating too many jobs. I mean, they read the jobs numbers in Guatemala. They read the jobs numbers in, in Venezuela. I promise you. And they go, holy moly, <laughs> they got jobs galore in that country. I want to go. That's understandable. Well, we were just in Vail, Colorado last week uh, on a vacation. And I can talk to any number of people out there, probably some of them conservative Republicans, who said without immigrants, uh, we couldn't run this place. That's all there is to it. The, the, the challenge he has and the criticism he's getting um, from the left is that there's uh, – the, the demand, pardon me, is a lot more than 360000 and the conditions of trying to locate you know, on your own app in your native country are very are, are very hard. 
And that's why I think the ACLU and others are going to bring suit against this. I don't, I, I don't have an easy answer, James. I really don't have. I just think it's tough because I think we need more people. Uh, the question, the, the, the picture of massive numbers of people coming across the border is politically difficult. There's no question of that. The reason you don't have an answer is because there is no answer. <laughs> and I, again, if I am a, a devout Christian, a Catholic, I mean, this would be a burning issue. This is an issue of humanity, all right? It is. And I, 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 I'm actually kind of sympathetic uh, with, the, with the left on this. I don't want to go as near as far as they go. But that, that they weren't trying to bring some light to this. I, I think it's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, the other problem that I think the president encountered this week was the announcement that they had discovered, I think, uh, 10 or 12 classified documents, or top secret documents, in his um, office at the Penn Center, where he, which he occupied for uh, the four years between he was vice president and when he ran for president. They, according to the Biden people, which I think is probably true, uh, the minute they, they discovered it, they uh, notified the National Archives, and they're turning it over. Now, of course, the Republicans up on Capitol Hill, the Jordans of the world are saying, aha, this is the same double standard. Look what they did to Trump. And uh, they're not doing any of that to Biden. The differences between these two issues are profound. Biden, apparently, you know, the minute they discovered it, a small number of documents, they turned it over. It's not unusual to have a small number of documents uh, leave accidentally. Trump was quite different. He had, you know, like 15-fold more documents uh, down there. He took them down there himself, and then they lied about it. And then they tried to hide them, and then they tried to stiff the archives. And only when the FBI went in uh, did they find all these documents. It is a violation of the Espionage Act not to turn over classified documents when you are in possession of them. I don't see any way you can say Trump didn't, isn't guilty of that. However, James, politically, it's a problem because he, 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 it, it, the other side will say, wait a minute, I'm sorry, you know, what's good for the Trump is good for Biden. Uh, it's really, that's a false equivalency, but I'm afraid this makes it a more difficult political issue than it was a couple of days ago. A couple of things to keep in mind. Number one, the best defense I've heard of this was by none other than Karl Rove, who said, wait, this is not even a comparable thing. So yeah. say what you want. But, but the second thing that's very important, the person in the Justice Department that's in charge of reviewing this was a Trump appointee. I can't emphasize this enough. The United States attorney in Delaware where they're investigating Hunter Biden, is a Trump holdover. So my short political answer is let, let's wait till this Trump appointee reviews everything, and, and, um, and looks like they're doing it expeditiously, and, and we'll get an answer. And if you're confused, just look at Karl Rove, and he explains the whole thing to you. You don't have to engage in a, in a great thing. So, uh, Trump appointee looking at it, Karl Rove, boom. Get the fuck out. I'll tell you. I'll tell you how far this Republican Party has come. Uh, those people up in the House 
they don't pay much attention to Karl Rove. So even, even, saying, though, even though he's right on this, uh, right. I mean, I think it's – I really do. I think it's totally different. I think it's a, a, you know, a complete falsehood, a, a complete false equivalency. I think it's going to make it a little bit more difficult to bring uh, action uh, against, against Trump. We'll see. I don't. But anyway, that's all right. I, 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 look, is, is, is it something you wish didn't occur? Yes. Right. To, or, yeah, or that's, have, that's, and, that's and of course. That's easy. They, they can't not. I don't. I don't. I don't think it's going to make it any any more difficult. And I think that at the bottom of this is exactly what you think it is. So I'm not that. I I, I wish it wouldn't have happened, but I'm not overly distraught about this. Well, I'm. I may not be overly distraught. I'm just distraught. But uh, in any event, we'll see what happens. Hey, our guest is Julian Zelazar, a distinguished Princeton political scientist and historian, co-author of a really, really interesting new book, Myth America, on the biggest legends and lies in our history. First, Julian, uh, we're going to get you to put on your Congress expert, your congressional expert hat, because you've written a lot about Congress. Your take on how these sweeping House Republicans, uh, sweeping House Republican agenda and rules changes, how it's going to play out. Well, I think it was... Uh dramatic um, moment. It was very clear that Kevin McCarthy was not running the show. And uh, I think the changes in the Republican Party uh, that have taken place, you know, over decades, but really intensified in the last few years with this new wave of Trumpian Republicans uh, culminated in this vote. And uh, McCarthy agreed to everything, essentially, including giving away uh, lots of power uh, of the speakership, which already doesn't have so much power, uh, certainly within the Republican caucus. And because of the way it was handled, because of what he conceded, I imagine uh, the the renegades are going to run the show uh, in, in the next few years on issues like the debt ceiling. And so I think we're in for serious times and his hand is severely weakened. And by disposition, McCarthy is someone who concedes uh, from the start. So um, I think it's uh, it's going to be certainly interesting is one way to say it in the time in the months ahead. That's very kind. I think it's going to be, and I think you do too, a lot worse than that. You know, it always sounds good to democratize the House uh, and you know let the members have a bigger say. There's an element of that that probably is desirable. But I don't think the House works without strong leaders. You know, maybe the 60s civil rights bills were exceptions. Uh, but I think you have to have strong leaders. You can talk about how much the committees ought to be able to do. And for these guys to pretend that you don't need a strong leader, uh, I, I just – it's fantasy land, Julian. Yeah, I mean there's – look, there's always strong leadership. It really depends where it's been. So we've had many periods like the uh, early 20th century where the speaker is very powerful. Uh, there was a speaker, Joe Cannon, uh, who was the chair of the House Rules Committee, not just putting members on the House Rules Committee. He was ultimately brought down – they reformed the institution. They empowered committee chairs for many decades, which became the source of power. And then since the 70s, we've seen the institution go back to strong speakers. But you need some kind of centralized source of authority. Uh, otherwise, it's impossible to control. And you're dealing with a Republican caucus now that, in my opinion, is not 
committed to governing. Uh, so the challenge is multifold. It's not simply the way the House works. It's the way this caucus works. And without leadership, I don't see how you get uh, a decision on key issues. I, I agree. You know, the vitriol that we hear from the Jim Jordans, the Matt Getzes, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, that really dates back to someone you've written about, Newt Gingrich, doesn't it? It does. And, uh, you know, I've, I've made this argument that everything isn't new, uh, that a lot of the changes that have taken place in the party started decades ago. Gingrich is one of the key pioneers in this new era of smash mouth, no guardrails, uh, partisanship. At this point, Gingrich looks like a statesperson, meaning, you know, he was the first wave, then you had the Tea Party, and now you have this cohort, uh, Green and others, and Jordan, uh, who are willing to go out even further than he ever imagined. But he set the party down this exact path. Uh, and, and I think we're watching it play out, um, including with this whole decision over McCarthy. Right. James. So, so, Julian, first of all, I, I got your book yesterday. I went to the Barnes and & Noble in Gulfport and, and picked it up. And I, I've been devouring it, of course, like anybody else. I, I, I go to – I look at the chapters and there's some I want to read more than others. So everybody is formed by their history. I'm a 78-year-old white, deep-south Southern Democrat whose great-grandfather, great-grandfather, was an officer in the Union Army and was a – Republican in the Louisiana legislature during Reconstruction, all right, and who, but whose daughter wrote the first draft of Mitch Landrieu's Confederate Monument speech, and my son-in-law wrote the final draft. So, and I, I thought that it was particularly the stuff on the monuments was 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 really good, and uh, this whole lost cause nonsense. I, I think that still has a certain hole on, on, on a certain part of America. Do you, do you, what's your general view of that? Absolutely. I mean, we've, we've seen it invoked uh, many times in the last few years, including when there are these debates about taking down Confederate monuments and uh, it was part of Charlottesville. And you hear this rhetoric all the time. And the author of that article, Karen Cox, uh, is trying to historicize where this all comes from, where the lost cause narrative really took hold, where the monuments, why they were put into place. And they were a response, a reaction uh, to Reconstruction, to civil rights, rather than some organic memory uh, of, of a lost Southern society. And, and they've remained that way ever since. And I think it's important to contextualize that. If you're going to have a debate uh, over, you know, why certain monuments would be on Capitol Hill or other parts of the country. Yeah, so a, a big influence in my life was an undergraduate history teacher at LSU named T. Harry Williams. And he hated the lost cause. I mean, just was fucking contemptuous of him. He tells a story about a, a 13-year-old girl coming home from Sunday school in Richmond in the 50s and saying, Mama, I forget, was General Lee in the Old Testament or the New Testament? The other thing, if, if I had one thing that chapter that I, I mean, of course, you can't cover everything, but I think the effect of reconstruction on the American psyche, and particularly these assholes at the Dunning School, I, I don't think you can single them out enough. And thank God Columbia redeemed itself with Professor Forner, who, who just literally <laughs> decimated the entire Dunning School. But reconstruction, in, my great-grandfather was involved in reconstruction. <laughs> Not my great-great-grandfather, okay? But those myths still have a, a, a prominent, occupy a prominent part of people's minds to, to this day. 
Absolutely. I mean, the initial interpretation of Reconstruction, which gained appeal, was incredibly negative assessment of what it was and horrible stereotypical images of uh, what free black Americans were doing uh, and presenting this as somehow ruining the nation as opposed to trying to rehabilitate the nation. And that's changed. You mentioned Eric Foner, historian. Du Bois also wrote about uh, this idea of reconstruction. But that other vision is incredibly powerful. During the 60s, in the debates over civil rights, uh, you often could hear on the White House telephone calls with Lyndon Johnson, uh, Southern leaders like Senator James Eastland invoking this old image of Reconstruction, saying that's what civil rights is going to do. It's going to you know, bring in the outsiders and just destroy Southern society. Uh, right through this day, uh, you still could hear that kind of trope. And it's damaging when you have an image so at odds with what Reconstruction was and, in fact, what it achieved before it was dismantled. So before I turn over to Albert, the, the one chapter that I really enjoyed and honestly was enlightened by it, and maybe it's a, it's a critique of my knowledge of American history, but the, the, the Professor Amar, I think is his name, mm-hmm. essay on the founding, man, I, mm-hmm. I, I like, you know, he really kind of poo-poos Madison and really, I mean, I have, you know, you know, George, how do you say George Washington is a bigger deal than you think? But actually, George Washington is a bigger deal than you think. And I, I was just, I just found it illuminating. And he kind of rejects this view that it was a, written by property holders to advance the, the, the interests of property holders. I, I think our founding has been discredited and is a lot more honorable than than it gets credit for in modern academia. Yeah, I mean, I mean that essay is going to anger a lot of people in some ways, different perspectives, because on the one hand, he does situate the Constitution and the creation of the country within the context of slavery and racism and argues that a democratic vision was juxtaposed with that, which was also very real. But he's also trying to recapture the democratic impulses behind the Constitution, making James Madison's work, uh, saying it wasn't really followed as people remember it, uh, and restoring uh, a a fundamental, a much more powerful democratic impulse, again, within the limitations he wants to show. So it's a very sophisticated, smart uh, essay that shows the complications of these moments rather than the clear way we try to interpret them. I need to read it five more times. But but the, the one thing, go right back to Ellen talking too much. I'll give these paid speeches and have all these conservative assholes. And they stand up and they say, James, you got to understand, the founders came together the Constitution Convention to limit the power of the federal government. Actually, they didn't. They came to fucking expand it. We, we tried your way. It's called Articles of Confederation. It, it just, like, it drives me nuts, but can't do anything about that. <laughs> Albert? Julian, let me um, talk about a couple contemporary issues that I think are chapters in, in this fascinating book uh, that I think uh, we still debate today. You wrote a chapter uh, saying that the idea of a Reagan revolution is a myth. You hear, you still today, on the House floor last week, you heard people talking about the Reagan revolution. Whatever you think of the Reagan administration, it wasn't a revolution, was it? No, and that's what I try to argue. Um, I'm not discounting the importance of Reagan, his impact, or conservatism in that period. But 
first of all, it's not as if liberalism disappears in 1981. And I try to show that liberal ideas, institutions, policies like Social Security <clears throat> remain very enduring. Uh, during the 1980s and ever since. The Reagan revolution was a term, a concept promoted by the Reagan administration to create the idea of a mandate. And I also try to show Reagan was a divisive figure. I mean, all of us who lived through that period remember, today people talk about him as the great uniter, uh, as if the country was swift, right. but that wasn't true. He was uh, in deep contestation with House Democrats under Speaker O'Neill. Uh, and, and so I wanted to give a much richer, more complex understanding of the battles between liberalism and conservatism in that decade. Well, and I think, I think you, you write, a, write a very important point that, that, that spending, federal spending as a percentage of GDP was higher when Reagan left office than when he went into office. That kind of makes it hard to describe it as a fiscal revolution. And Reagan backs off on some of the most draconian cuts he wanted to make, including a push to cut early retirement benefits for Social Security recipients, which is uh, that's when we get this idea of a third rail. And he backs away and won't talk about that. So you look at the big picture, the idea that the legacy of the New Deal and great society are shattered by his victory just doesn't hold water. Another really relevant topic today, and, a, and I think a terrific chapter, voting fraud. Voting fraud is a great myth in America, not just recently, but has been for quite a while. Yeah, Carol Anderson, a great historian at Emory, wrote a chapter uh, both on uh, discounting this idea that voting fraud has been this massive problem, certainly in modern times, but also showing where the rhetoric came from. It's been a staple to go against voting rights, to use that rhetoric, as we've seen in recent years, back to the Jim Crow era as a way to undercut the constitutional rights of citizens. So it's important, uh, and it puts the election denialism stuff in much broader context. Yeah, it sure does. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I love so many chapters, but another one that's really a hot topic today is immigration. Talk about, uh, talk about the immigration yeah. myth. Yeah, I mean, we have two, two really good chapters on that. One by a historian, Erica Lee, who takes on this language you often hear, the immigrants keep coming, the immigrants keep coming into the country. And she looks at the long history of the pull, all the different forces in American society, including business, who are constantly trying to draw in immigrants because they realize their importance and centrality uh, to the American economy. So I think it's, it's quite important right through this day. And a second is an essay on the border. And a historian, uh, Jerry Cadova, takes this, kind of bleak image of border towns uh, as a site of violence and danger and really actually looks at a history that's much different as a site of uh, kind of cultural interaction, of economic vitality. And, and much of the border has been an important part of, of the kind of positive element of American life. So we have those two taking on uh, these staples you hear in anti-immigration rhetoric. Boy, that's for sure. James. Uh, so I, I refer back to our early guest, Congressman Ruben Gallego of Arizona, makes exactly the same point. And he grew up on the border. Then he said, you know, people go back and forth. They'd go to the dentist. They'd go shop, et, 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 et cetera. I also thought it was very valuable that you had a chapter on immigration and a chapter on the border. People conflate the two. It's two different things. And it's really hard to drive through. I thought that was enormously uh beneficial. It was really good. So I talked about how my upbringing shaped my worldview, being a, you know, white Southerner with a Reconstruction 
great-grandfather legislator and influenced T. Harry Williams. Uh, you, your dad was a very influential rabbi in New Jersey, and I'm told that you wrote a, a, a book on, on a great Jewish theologian. And I'm, I says, just tell us about it. Just tell us, just tell us about the book you wrote or maybe something about your upbringing or how you came to this place. Because no one just arrives somewhere. You don't parachute in when you're 45 years old. You've got a whole life experience behind you. Yeah, I mean, from my father, my father was a conservative rabbi in New Jersey, and my grandfather was a conservative rabbi in Ohio and later Florida, uh, and his father was an immigrant rabbi. So I come from uh, a line of, of rabbis, and so religion's always been important in my life. It still is to this day. I think about it a lot. I'm really interested through watching my family and the connections between the sacred and the secular, how the two worlds interact. But I'm also aware that the religious right, always been, or isn't the only story about religion in this country, which I think we often think of it when we talk about religion. So I wrote a book about this uh, rabbi, a theologian, Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, who was an immigrant from Warsaw, became a very prominent theologian in the country, worked at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. But in the 60s, he started to get involved as a civil rights activist. He was very close to Martin Luther King. Uh, he leads a coalition of religious leaders against the Vietnam War in the second half of the 1960s. And he saw this uh, progressive element of religion. He didn't do it as a religious person getting involved in activism, but his Judaism, his understanding of what it meant to be pious, led him to think that the way to do that is to fight for social justice. And so it was really great to write this book, a little different than many of my books, um, but still grounded in, in where I come from and connecting it to U.S. history in the 60s. In case somebody doesn't know, just give us what you mean in context. Your dad was a conservative rabbi. That doesn't mean that he was for a capital gains tax cut or something like that. Oh, no, okay. no, no. <laughs> right. There's I know, just, denomination. Right. Right. There's Orthodox, which is kind of the strictest observant. Right. Uh, reform is the least, and conservative, it's in the middle. Right. Uh, and that's yeah. all it means. Yes. It doesn't have it's anything to do with political started. ideology. No. All right. I just, I, oh, no, no. Sometimes you can't. Yeah, our audience is Thank probably, you. you know, three times more Jewish than the population, but a lot of people might, might, might not have yeah. that uh, in context. Uh, I, I, you know, just every time I go through the book, I, I, I learn something different. But one thing I've noticed is that when you tell people that something is a myth, they actually get kind of get irritated with you. You know, if they don't want you, they don't want you to tell them that. They want to continue believing that. And I, I think that some of the problems that liberals, and I'm definitely a liberal, okay, I'm not a leftist, but I am, I am a freaking liberal. I'm not a modern Democrat by any stretch of the imagination. Sometimes you got to be careful how you, how you puncture a myth. Because people will shut down on you. Uh, yes, and I'm sure that's going to happen with, with the book. Uh, I mean, our hope is to reach as many people as possible and, and try to kind of uh, get into the conversation. Uh, but you're right. And so what we did, there's different ways to do it. There's You can stand on a soapbox and say BS uh, to another person. We just tried to bring the best and brightest historians out there, scholars who have been at the top of their fields for decades, and to write essays, they're not simply, I mean, I got the title, but it's not simply myth-busting. What they're really doing is drawing on decades of scholarship, people who've studied in the archives, who have read and read 
and bring together in these short essays, what do we know about uh, these different areas like immigration or the role of government? And look, uh, I, that's my uh, approach to myth busting. It's to bring the benefits of a professional story to the table. Uh, and I hope that the reach is wide enough uh, and that others are encouraged to do the same. Uh, thank you. Well, well, you've certainly done it. You've done a terrific job, uh, Julian. To all of you listeners out there who get into discussions or debates with your neighbors or sometimes your family members or people at work, or sometimes you hear things said by the Jim Jordans of the world, you got to get this book, Myth America by Julian Zelazar and Kevin Cruz. And it, it will be it, it will be something, as James said earlier, you'll go back and read some of these chapters three, four, five times. Julian, we can't thank you enough for being with us. Uh, you've, you've been enlightening as usual. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, now for our outrage of the week. Uh, there's so many, James. It, this is so hard to pick. But I want to go outside of Washington. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine is seen as a more responsible, less hateful Republican. He did largely rise to the occasion on COVID, and unlike so many Republicans, has not been a sycophant of the disgraced Donald Trump. But last Friday, as most of the political world was focused on the zoo and the contest for Speaker of the House of Representatives, DeWine signed a law clearly designed to further suppress the votes of minorities and young voters. Specifically, it poses the most stringent photo ID in the country. It may affect as many as 500,000 Buckeye voters uh, who don't have those ID, primarily poor people, citizens of color, and younger voters. It limits each county to one drop box. Drop boxes are a convenient and secure and easy way to vote uh, for Democrats and Republicans. But that limit would limit Democratic Cuyahoga and Franklin counties, which had over 400,000 votes apiece, last November to one drop box and rural Republican Vinton with 4,000 votes to one drop box. It's quite clear what the intent is here and, and eliminates voting the day before the election. All this under the false flag of voter integrity. This isn't about fraud. There really isn't any. It's about voter suppression, a blatantly partisan effort aimed at making it harder for minorities and young voters to vote. So please take down Mike DeWine from any good guy list. So, uh, you know, in, in the eternal hunt for the good Republican, uh, people will say, well, if there's 18 Republicans that uh, won in districts that Biden won, that's true. You have the problem solving caucus. There's a word to describe all these people full of shit. Let me demonstrate. Kevin McCarthy made a deal with the Freedom Caucus for their votes that these people have no idea what was in there. They vote. They voted blindly to elect Kevin McCarthy speaker without even demanding to know what concessions that he made to some of the looniest, craziest people in American politics. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. One of the things they agreed to is a congressman by the name of Buddy Carter from the first congressional district of Georgia. I read this on Fox News site. It, it, you're talking about defund the IRS or, or not you know, try to take the, this really well-spent money that will, will 
knocked $114 billion off the deficit. No, that's not what they're proposing even. Buddy Carter is going to bring to the floor a bill on the House of Representatives that is going to eliminate the income tax. No, stop. Not just the income tax. It's going to eliminate the estate tax. It's going to eliminate the gift tax. But it doesn't stop there. It's also going to eliminate the payroll tax. Now, let's, have, let's all digest it. While we chicken it no more income tax, no more estate tax, no more payroll. Of course, the payroll taxes, you well know, fund Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. And what they in, in, in their jargon, they say they're going to replace it with a consumption tax. Okay, what is a consumption tax? That's a fancy word for a tax on everything that you buy. Now, we can get the answer to this, but I think it would be over 40%. If you did away with all income taxes and all payroll taxes, it, it would take a, a, a easy 40% consumption tax to make up the revenue. And the idea says, well, James, come on. They're really not going to do that. It's a Democratic-controlled Senate. Hey, screw that. No one was going to defund the police either. But it was a statement of, and, and that's a statement of their values. And Rick Scott is pushing the same goddamn thing. And yet you got the Washington Post saying it's not fair to say that they want to cut Social Security and Medicare. He said, we need a better elite in this country. I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry. We have a sorry-ass elite. We just do. And, and this thing is not being covered. You can look it up. Eliminate the income tax, the estate tax, the payroll tax, and replace it with a consumption tax. And, of course, a guy that makes $800,000 a year, his next dollar goes to savings. So, so, you know, a, a fireman and a dental hygienist with three kids, you think they can, who don't pay, probably don't pay any income tax to speak of, you think they can take a 43% increase in everything they buy? But th that, is a, that is a statement of debate. And by the way, in October of 2022, Kevin McCarthy said that they would use the debt limit to force cuts in Social Security and Medicare. We did not exploit that. And they think of all the exploitation on bullshit defund the police that we had to sustain, but we don't drive home these fundamental economic issues that they are very serious about. They're very serious about it. So that that well, let's look up. Let's let's check. Run a check as James has Buddy, on Buddy Carter. Carter and Kevin. Yeah, Kevin right. It's on the Fox News site. That's where I read it. All right, now for our listener questions. Boy, they are good as always. James, Terry in Palmetto, Florida, uh, wants to know, um, this is, he's very pointed. He says that Tallahassee Mussolini, I think he's referring to Governor DeSantis, has announced there will be no woke in Florida. I'm awaiting his black shirts to come to relocate me any day now. What can Florida Democrats do to undermine DeSantis before 2024? Find a candidate to run against Rick Scott. All right? And, and, and draw them out on this nonsense of, of, of sunsetting Social Security, Medicare, 
in everything else. I mean, we had a horrifically disappointing uh, 2022 in Florida, but I, I don't see any activity from Florida Democrats or, or, or people trying to pull it together. And even if you don't beat Rick Scott, you can you can really bring how just unpopular this stuff is they're bringing up. Uh, and DeSantis is a – this is my view of him. He's about stunts. And the thing about stunts, you have to keep – you have to keep doing stunts that they, they, they last two weeks. And he's, you know, he's obviously had a very impressive election cycle, but we got to get organized and Florida Democrats got bring to light what's really going on here. And I don't, I don't think, I don't know what being the W word means even anymore. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't rule out Val Demings making another run. It was a bad year in Florida. She lost, but she was a good candidate. And, uh, you're, you know, you're certainly right. you got to take on, uh, take on Rick Scott. Catherine in Berkeley, California. This is a good question. says, why are we allowing them, the Republicans, to be called the Freedom Caucus when they are the Tyranny Caucus? Catherine, you are so right. These people believe in freedom only if it restricts uh, Democrats, moderates, liberals, anybody who's not one of their right-wing brethren. Uh, they, they, their, their belief in freedom is quite limited and quite constricted. And uh, I think you're right. I think to allow them to be called the free, the, the press shouldn't do that. You shouldn't talk about the Freedom Caucus. I mean, if if the Democrats came up and said, you know, we have the, you know, the America Caucus, we have the, you know, the the whatever you want to call it, I don't think they'd get away with it. And I don't think we should call them the Freedom Caucus. I agree with you, Catherine. Yeah, I, I, I guess the answer, the best answer I ever heard was Clayton Yider. You remember him? He was a former Secretary yeah. was the head of the RNC, and he was the first RNC chairman to call it the Democratic Party and not the Democrat Party, which I don't know. They think that's insulting. And he said a political party has a right to be called what it wants to be. And I, you know, I think that they can be called a Freedom Caucus, and I think the, the point you make is a good one. You know, about anything other than freedom, and you can use the word jujitsu to, to shove it back in their face. Well, if you let them do that, you at least, and you're writing about them or talking about them, you ought to provide some context. It should uh, be the restrict freedom caucus. Right. I agree. Yeah. Um, you know, absolutely. We're going to stay on this subject. Kyle in Portland, Oregon, asked you, James, have the crazies effectively taken over the Republican caucus? Yes. Yeah. And, no and, and by the way, it's not just that the crazies are taking over, because if, if we just focus on the crazies, we're not talking about the enablers, all right? And the enablers are the people who ran saying, Washington is dysfunctional. I want to go there and work to actually get something done. You don't. That was never your intention. All of them, 100%. Actually, the people that didn't vote, from McCarthy were all kind of extreme freedom caucus members. But but the entire Republican Party and the entire Republican con in Congress are complicit in this. Don't let them off the hook. Don't call the Freedom Caucus out of the herd as if it's some strange deal that is not really part of the look at Mike look at DeWine 
in, in Ohio signing these highly restrictive voting bills. That's where we make a mistake. We get seduced to think that there's some Republicans that are different than others. They're really not that different. Brian Kemp in Georgia, too. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is Gary in Andrews, Texas, and Rob in Millersville, Maryland. I, geez, we live right next to Maryland. I'm not quite sure where Millersville oh, yeah, is, yeah, but you yeah. ask good questions, Rob, as does Gary. I'm going to combine them. And they are that now that the House rules allows any single member to move to vacate the chair to get rid of the speaker, can the Democrats use this rule to hijack attempts to repeal Democratic programs like Medicare, Social Security, and Obamacare? No, I think not. Uh, they oppose the rule for good reasons, and uh, they aren't going to get someone better uh, if they do that. And there's a very simple way to um, stop the hijacking of any efforts to repeal Medicare, Social Security, or Obamacare. Put it up to a vote. Put it up to a vote. I, I, I think as timid as some of those moderate Republicans are, they ain't going to vote for that. So yeah. uh, so I think this is a bad rule. Let any member vacate the chair. Uh, I don't think Democrats should play that game. I, I don't want to stop them from voting. Right. All right. And, and what they need to do is they vote on some of this crazy stuff that never passed the Senate. Don't kill it in committee. Offer what they – offer the bill they passed is an amendment. Have a Democratic senator bring it up and say, let's just pass the House. Let's go on the record. Then those Republican senators are going to have to piss off the House members or piss off the voters. You, you, can, you can use the legislative process to stick the share venom. And yeah. that's what I recommend doing. You sure you, you, know, you sure can. All right, James. You know, every now and then I want to give you just a really, really nice one right down the middle of the plate. Oh, it's just, oh. I mean, it's just honest. I mean, this is just your dream. You ready? And right, it comes yeah. from Josh in Marion, Illinois. I All love right. John Bell Edwards. What's his political future? <laughs> well, I, I love John Bell Edwards. Like, you know, uh, he's probably the best governor of Louisiana in my lifetime, which is pretty long. And everything that he does has to be contexted. He has got an extremely right-wing Republican crazy legislature that he's dealt with. Um, what I would hope is he's leaving office. I would hope that the, and he and his wife are very devout Catholics. And I know uh, Joe Donnelly's there, but I, I would love to see him be ambassador to the Vatican. I think that would be a great... And I think if there's a Democratic... Uh, if we win 2024, I think he's on the short list for any uh, in, in cabinet position. Uh, his position on, on choice and guns would not sit well in terms of him being a national elected figure in the Democratic Party. But he's just been a, he's a terrific human being and he's been a terrific governor. And I, I thank you for asking that question. So uh, I, I could share with our audience what I really think about this guy. And by the way, he was the, the chairman of the Honors Council at West Point. He was an Army Ranger. He was a, uh, a, a very good athlete in high school. His dad, who I knew very well, in fact, sometimes I call him Frank. His dad was named Frank Edwards, and he was the sheriff of Tangipahoa Parish, uh, which is in the toe of the boot, and, and pretty decent-sized parish and by Louisiana standards, and was a kind of legendary. And his brother is the current sheriff of Tangipahoa Parish. So, uh I think a lot of it. Yeah. On John Bell Edwards, uh, I can't add anything to what James says other than to say I agree. 
Uh, Matt in Cincinnati, Ohio, says, over the next two years, are House Democrats better off to make unsuccessful attempts to expel George Santos, uh, whoever George Santos is, we're still not sure who he is, from Congress, or should they make him the face of the Republican Party ahead of 2024? It's a waste of time to bring up motions to expel him. Uh, You know, let the Republicans stew in that. Uh, My guess is that Mr. Santos is a short-termer, that uh, things are going to happen legally and elsewhere, that he won't be there for long. But the longer he is there, the better it is for Democrats. Just let them stew in it. That, that's a very sophisticated question, and I, I agree with, with Al on this one. All I would do is say, where's the passport? Can you just show us your passport? I mean, we don't have any idea if this guy's even a citizen. All right? There's no reason to believe him one way or the other. And I think you're right. He's, and I think Dan Goldman and some of these people start to do a good job. Use him as a symbol. If you get rid of him, he's gone and people forget about him. You don't want people to forget about George Santos. You want them to remember, as I said, I think he's divinely sent by the Lord God in heaven to expose the rot of the modern Republican Party because no human being could come up with someone this duplicitous in, in, in this vapid. It's impossible. It, there has to be divine inspiration somewhere. And let's let the public get a good taste of it before he goes. You mentioned Dan Goldman, who I think is a great – I mean, I am really impressed with Dan Dan Goldman. He was the counsel for the Intelligence Committee during the Trump impeachment. He's a freshman member from New York. Uh, I, I hope Hakeem Jeffries puts him on that fake Jim Jordan uh, deep state committee, which is actually trying to uh, – it's, it's, it's really a – a, a pro-Trump committee. That's the whole thing. It's to justify Trump. Dan Goldman knows those issues. He's a heck of a lawyer, uh, and he's just a freshman, but I hope he's, I hope he's on that committee, James. I, I agree. That's a very astute observation now. Yeah. I agree with you. Brian in Queens, New York, says, mm-hmm. goes back to a bit of an earlier question, too. Why doesn't the Democratic Party start the same messaging that Republicans use and started identifying themselves more with freedom, America, energy independence, securing the borders. Republicans should not have a monopoly on these words, Brian says. If I tell you the untold hours that I have spent thinking about this or talking about it, uh, and the problem is, and I'm not saying it's, it's insurmountable, but the Democratic Party is a party of coalitions, and it kind of, you know, it moves, but I mean, basically, you know, right now we have the bulwark people and the, the squad. And that there's a certain amount of tension and disagreement within the party. And we don't have a house organ, all right, like, like Fox, nothing, nothing remotely close to it. And which leads to, you know, some, the, 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 the Mainstream press can't get enough of the Biden document story because it makes them feel better that, that, that they can be objective. But what about her emails? You, you think that, that the conservative goods, of course, turned out to be nothing, thank you. But they don't do that. So we have, a, we have a, a different infrastructure in a Democratic Party that makes this kind of messaging difficult. That is not to say that we shouldn't try, and that is not to say that we shouldn't keep thinking of them. Well, I agree. And just to touch a bit on the media, um, there is a – here's the problem. Fox uh, – it, 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 
has no conflicts. It knows exactly what it's all about. It's relentless. It's not going to change. Too much of the mainstream media is subject to what a great journalist named Wallace Carroll talked about during the McCarthy era, and that is the tyranny of objectivity. And I'm sorry, some things are, are not on the one hand, on the other hand. And even today when I saw the Times piece on that uh, totally phony Jim Jordan committee to look at uh, the federal government, uh, I, I, it was a on the one hand, on the other hand, and that's not the truth. That's not the reality. Right. So, uh, you know, we got to keep Let me tell you, the congressional reporters love telling Jim Jordan, look how objective we are. Yeah. <laughs> you know that's going on. Come on. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know. Okay. Um, keep those questions coming in. I'm sorry for the ones we didn't get to. We'll try to get to them next week. They are so good, and you all told us where you're from. The only thing we're missing today, James, is that we didn't have any foreign, uh, any questions from overseas, which we'll probably get next week. I'm sure we will. We 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 love all peoples all the way around the world. <laughs> we do. So thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Roan Apparel and Hold On Bags in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them because you know, when you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning. 